The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. One quick note before we jump into the podcast. These interviews were conducted over the phone, so the audio quality isn't the best. Um, So bear with me. Uh, Great interviews, great conversations, but not the best audio quality. Uh, So bear with me and uh, enjoy the conversations. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we talk with Don Wittenberger, founder of the Yak Works and owner of Rivendell Mountain Works, and Eric Hardy, partner at Rivendell. We talk about the influence of these 70s-era soft pack companies and the legacy of the Jensen Pack. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase Anderson, and today uh, joining me over the phone is Don Wittenberger, uh, the founder of Yakworks, as well as the current owner of Rivendell Mountain Works. Uh, thanks for joining me over the phone after a few technical difficulties we had to work through. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for taking some time. Uh, do you mind sharing where you're at right now? Where are you based out of, Don? Um, I live in a suburb of Seattle, Washington. That's great. Um, hope you're doing well. I, we're kind of in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and everything going on, and uh, I'm glad to hear that you're doing as as good as you can be right now, and and um, you're you're safe and healthy right now. I lost a good friend uh, to this virus. He was a medical researcher at the University of Washington, one of the uh, early victims, and that was kind of a shock, but uh, I'm doing okay and my family is doing okay. Sorry sorry to hear about your loss. We, I wanted to, to connect with you through, through a you know, mutual uh, friend, acquaintance, um, Bruce Johnson. Um, through all the work that he's done preserving the history of the outdoor industry, your name comes up and it comes up a lot. And um, you know, through his history of gear project, uh, he's documented uh, your impact on the industry. And and I wanted to take some time and and talk with you a little bit about um, your your backstory and how you got into the industry and and um, you know you're you're still in it. Um, you know, which which is amazing. I'm glad that you're still a part of the industry and and uh, you know still you know still active and and working in this industry. So, um, do you mind taking us back a few years and and just kind of sharing your experience um, in the outdoors? What you know, what was your first exposure to the outdoors? I think the best way to answer that is with kind of a brief biographical approach. I was a city kid. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in an urban environment. So my exposure to the outdoors and to outdoor activities was limited to Cub Scout, Boy Scout, and Explorer Scout outings, camping trips and hikes and so forth, and family vacations. 
For example, my family had relatives in Denver, Colorado, and so we made uh, uh, a couple of vacation trips to that area and went to places like Rocky Mountain National Park and the Red Rocks amphitheater and so forth. So I had, so although I grew up in the city, I had some exposure to the outdoors. And the bulk of it during my uh, childhood and growing up years was through scout outings. Where were you growing up at, at this time and, and, and what year was this? Well, I was I was born in 1946, so I was in scouts in the 1950s. I graduated from high school in 1964, and so most of my Boy Scout activities would have been in the late 1950s and the early uh, 1960s. And consistent with that, I became an REI member in around 1961 or 1962. And I have an REI member number that goes back uh, to that date. And we would go on these weekend trips, summer and winter, and it gets very cold there and snowy there. And uh, so that was my early exposure to camping gear. You know, we'd put, throw a pack on our backs and we'd go out and hike around and uh, we would sleep in tents and uh, cook around campfires and that kind of thing. Quite a bit of the gear that was around in those days was Army surplus stuff. And, uh, I mean, it was cheap and it was fairly readily available. A lot of the kids had it. And, and plus the Boy Scout troop owned some gear, tents and, and cooking gear for group cooking gear and this type of thing. And we would load all the stuff. You know, one of the fathers had a truck and we'd load all the gear in a truck and then we would go to, uh, places like Kettle Moraine State Park in Wisconsin and, and, uh, we'd camp in places like that. We, took this one uh, winter camping trip to High Cliff State Park on the shore of Lake Winnebago in Wisconsin, and they have some cliffs there and rock cliffs there. And, of course, I was climbing around on the cliffs. You know, I got interested in mountain climbing at a pretty early age, partly from exposure to library books. And there are no mountains in Wisconsin. There, there are a couple of rock climbing areas there that I basically didn't have access to. So I was just climbing on anything that could be climbed. You know, I pretty, at a fairly early age, I had this, acquired this impulse to climb things. And some of that came from the family trips to Colorado, too. When we went to Colorado, uh, we'd stay in, you know, lodgings or family campground. And if there was a hill around or a small mountain around, off I went, trying to get to the top of it. And I actually did my earliest rock climbing on my parents' house. You know, I was climbing the exterior walls. And in the winter, when it snowed and there was snow up on the roof, I was, you know, climbing around up on the roof. Uh, I made my first pair of crampons by driving some nails through uh, pieces of plywood and strapping them to my shoes and um, climbing around up on the roof, which probably punched holes in the shingles and made the roof leak. And many years later, after my parents were retired and, you know, I was all grown up and I was visiting them, you know, my I remember my dad mentioning that I wrecked all the gutters on their house. And one of my brothers likes to tell a story about how one day uh, my mother looked out the kitchen window and saw me rappelling down a rope on the outside of the house. Well, that's the kind of kid I was. You know, I just had this impulse to climb things. And 
and I also had an impulse to tinker with gear. You know, a lot of the gear that we had was pretty basic, pretty primitive, and and this impulse basically came from sort of a combination of intellectual qualities, curiosity, uh, maybe a certain amount of dissatisfaction with the gear I had, a desire to make it work better, you know, kind of a, a, a thought pattern that goes, I can do better than this type of thing. So I started playing around with modifying gear and trying to make things work and work better and so forth. Then I, you know, went off to college and I spent my first year attending college at home, you know, as a computer student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And then I spent a couple of years at the journalism school at the University of Missouri and Columbia. And they get cold winters there too. And there were some quarries around there with rock cliffs. So I did a little bit of outdoor activity while there, but mostly I was just studying and working. And then I came to Seattle in the summer of 1967, and I had always planned to move to this area because I wanted to climb the mountains here from the time I was in junior high school. I intended to, I had never been to Seattle, but I knew where I wanted to live. There were mountains here. It was that simple. So after finishing up at the University of Missouri, I came on a plane, came to uh, Seattle, and I almost immediately landed a job with a newspaper up in Bellingham, Washington, and I spent about a year working there, which takes us up to about the summer of 1968, and at that point, I enlisted in the Army. There was a war going on in Vietnam. I joined the Army. I was single, you know, I wasn't married, and I didn't have you know, job prospects at that point. And I, you know, I basically, I had various motives for joining the Army. One was, you know, that I wanted to, uh, frankly, I wanted to see the war. You know, history was being made and I was in the news all the time and I wanted to see what this was all about. And I think a big part of it too was I've, I've always had an emotional connection to the, what you might call the working class. Blue collar guys, you know, I mean, my heart is really with them. And they were the ones that were getting drafted and sent over there to fight this. And those of us who were in college sat on student deferments that made us exempt from the draft. And basically, I didn't want to be a privileged character. Um, I felt that, you know, if they could go over there and be in that, I could too. You know, I mean, I didn't feel like I was too good to do this. I wanted more to think that I was good enough to be there with them. And I have, you know, 50 years later, I have tremendous respect for those guys that fought the war. You know, it was a bad war. I think that it probably was a mistake, but um, but I just have great, great respect for the veterans and also for the military people serving today. And the Army really wasn't my cup of tea. I'm a nonconformist. They don't really like creative thinkers in the Army. You know, they want you to follow orders, not you know, think of better ways of doing things, right? Part of the reason also that I wanted to uh, wanted to enlist was because by that time I knew I wanted to go to law school and I was going to need the GI benefits to do that. So after I got out of the Army in uh, May of 1970, I came back to Bellingham. At that time, the country was in an economic depression. There were no jobs, so I enrolled in graduate studies at uh, Western Washington State College up in Bellingham, and I I spent you know, a good part of that summer backpacking and climbing out in the uh, North Cascades. You know, it really was a climbing summer for me. And around the same time, I started actively started designing my own gear. You know, I was climbing with some stuff I bought from REI. It was around you know the summer and fall of 1970 that I began to hatch the plans that became the Acworks. Right. Did did uh, your experience in the military influence? 
kind of how you saw products. You were working with gear and used gear and relied on gear um, in military. Did that influence um, how you thought about product at that time? You were starting to create your own products? Yes, but the big picture answer to that is that everything, every experience that I have influences my thinking about gear. So it wasn't just the military. It wasn't just my Boy Scout experience. It wasn't just my own climbing and hiking. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, what other people were doing with gear. All of those things factored in. I have a very lively mind. You know, think, think of my brain as a stew pot, and you just throw all those ingredients in, and you get some kind of stew. So when you started, when you started Yak Works, what did you pull from where? Uh, what were some of the different influences that you pulled from. I've, you've shared, you know, your climbing experience, your military experience, your tinkering experience. What were some of those things that you wanted to bring to your own gear company? The first thing I wanted to do was design a better sleeping bag. And, and I did build a sleeping bag. It was really the first, you know, thing that I designed. And I still have that sleeping bag, although it was designed to be a very tight-fitting mummy bag. And frankly, I can't get into it anymore. I've put on some weight since then. You know, I made a sleeping bag. I bought the materials at retail. And then I, you know, got a sewing machine and I, you know, bought some down and I put this thing together and pretty soon I was using it for my own climbs and it worked out okay. We never turned it into a commercial product. And and now you have feathered friends and they, you know, do this much better than anything that I could have done with sleeping bags and you know, why do something if somebody's doing it better, right? Where where did the name come from? I had a cousin who wanted to be in business. He wanted to start a business and he was looking for a business idea. And we got together with his money, his desire to start and run a business and my product ideas. And we started a company called Wilderness Experience. And that was the company that became Yakworks. And we renamed it after I developed the pack. It became the Yak Pack, and we thought up the name for the pack, and then we changed the name of the company to the Yak Works. <clears throat> so that's where the name came from, and all of this started in the summer, in the fall and winter of 1970, and, and it gelled and came together over the next three years. I was in law school from 1970 to 1973, and the Yak Pack and the uh, Yak Works came into being simultaneously with that. So I was doing both. You know, I was, you know, a law student and I was starting this company. Uh, can you share a little bit about just kind of the time period? It's interesting considering you know, your relationship with Rivendell now. That 1970s period of time is, is interesting for soft packs, right? Um, you had Don Jensen uh, with the Jensen pack, you know, Larry Horton, you know, starting Rivendell, and then you, all of you kind of doing soft packs at that time. Can you share a little bit about what was happening around that time and kind of these three, yourself included, these three individuals, right, working on these kinds of products? Uh, the wheel probably was invented many times by many different people in many different places at various times. <clears throat> the Yak Pack and the Jensen Pack, the, the Jensen Pack I'm sure was designed before the Yak Pack was. You know, Don Jensen designed it or did the principal design work on it probably in the mid to late 1960s. I didn't start on the Yak Pack until about late 1970 or early 1971. I, I've never met Jensen. I wasn't aware of his work. This was a case of two people that were trying to solve the same problem and came up with 
basically similar solutions working independently. And the ACT, the ACT pack was largely designed before I ever saw a Jensen pack. The first time I saw a Jensen pack was when the uh, Swallow's Nest store had just started up in Seattle. Uh, it was started by um, Clark Gerhardt and Bill Sumner and another guy whose name I can't remember. And they had this very small shop in the U District uh, near the University of Washington campus and, you know, not far from the law school. And I was climbing then and I would go over there and, and you know, buy gear and buy climbing books and, and that. And uh, at one point, the Jensen Pack was sold through retail shops and they had one in the shop and I saw it and I looked it over and I didn't buy it and I had as a student I had no money in those days but at that point I became aware that somebody else was doing the same thing that I was doing with you know a frameless pack I had come to believe that you didn't that you could carry a significant load in a backpack without some sort of rigid frame and part of the trick to that was to use the load itself as your stiffener and there were significant differences between the Jensen pack and the Yak Pack. Although they were both frameless packs and although they were both body contoured packs, the Yak Pack was bigger. It could carry a larger load and in order to do that it had a hip belt, a floating hip belt, which the Jensen Pack did not. And another feature of the Yak Pack that the Jensen Pack did not have was a vertical slot between the uh, back of the pack and the dividers, the vertical dividers, that you could slip a sleeping pad in that. And that provided a certain amount of rigid vertical support. It provided pat padding against the back, and it was also a convenient place to stash the uh, sleeping pad. Sleeping pads, carrying sleeping pads on a pack were a problem. So most people would tie them on horizontally onto the top of the pack, and when you're trying to bushwhack through brush and that, it'd be hanging up in the brush and that sort of thing, and I thought the thing to do with this is instead of carrying it sideways, carry it vertically, and instead of carrying it externally in the pack, carry it inside the pack, and then figure out some arrangement where it actually becomes in a way a part of the pack. And so that's how I came up with that feature of the act pack. And the Jensen pack didn't have that. What was the, I guess, the relationship between John Jensen's original designs and then the later inspired, I guess, Jensen pack that was produced by Rivendell and Larry Horton? Was John Jensen producing packs for sale or really just for himself? Don Jensen was a mathematics student at, the, at Harvard University. And he belonged to the Harvard Climbing Club, and he was doing some pretty serious expedition climbing in Alaska, and he was designing his own gear for his own use. I never met Jensen. He was killed, you know, and I'm not sure exactly when he died. It was around 1970, 71, something like that. Uh, he was uh, an exchange graduate student in Scotland, and he was on a bicycle and was hit by a truck. I don't, as far as I know, Jensen never had any idea of starting a company to sell gear. He was designing gear for his own use. And Rivendell was started by Larry Horton and several investors. And, and I think there were a couple other people that were active in it. Um, we're in contact with, with a fellow named Larry Peterson, who is a retired attorney living in Yakima, Washington. I've never met him in person, but he was part of the original Rivendell crew. He was involved in making the tents. 
And this is in the context of the 1970s when you had a lot of these little startup outdoor gear outfits, companies, and these were people who were active climbers, hikers, and there was kind of an entrepreneurial spirit then. By having these companies, they were free to go out and climb, and, and they were designing gear and selling gear and trying to make a living at this. So that's where a lot of these little startups came from, and Rivendell was that kind of company. They called it a cottage industry in their promotional materials. Basically, they made gear, sold it, and for about 10 years, Larry Horton made enough money doing this that he didn't have to work at a conventional job. So, And they started in uh, Seattle, then they moved out to Snoqualmie, Washington, and then he moved to Victor, Idaho. Part of the reason for that was because he liked to climb in the Tetons, which were just over the hill. And eventually, he couldn't make it financially. He had to go through formal legal bankruptcy. And so I got in touch with the bankruptcy, and I heard about it. And at that point, I was—I had been with the Actworks for about 10 years, and uh, I was in the process of breaking up with my partner there. I was going to leave the Actworks. Although I found out about the Rivendell bankruptcy before that happened, and my original intention was to, to buy Rivendell from the bankruptcy trustee and integrate it into the Actworks. But then my the Actworks partner and I had a falling out, and we split up, and I I took Rivendell with me. And, I, and there was one other bidder. It was a, a small manufacturer of Western clothing and Western gear located in Wyoming, and they only wanted some of the sewing machines. So Rivendell was split up where they got the sewing machines they wanted, and I took the rest of the assets. And I, so I bought them. So I bought Rivendell from the bankruptcy trustee, and I intended to set it up as a business, but uh, by then I was married and had a child. And and I was working at a pretty demanding job, and so I didn't have time. I didn't have money. Rivendell, you know, existed, but at a uh, at, at a pretty low volume for quite a few years. By then, I had met Eric Hardy, and he was interested in making Jensen packs, and I let him do it. And you know, I basically let him make the packs and sell them. And he was making and selling a few Jensen packs every year, and we were trying to keep it alive that way. And that's kind of what the status of Rivendell was from 1981 until about 2007 or 2008 when the Great Recession hit. Eric lost his job. He worked as a maintenance supervisor for a ski area. So at that point, he wanted to sell the Rivendell packs full time. And we work out a basis to do that. Basically, he does that, pays me a royalty on each pack sold, and I just reinvest that money in Rivendell. You know, I've never made anything off of Rivendell, and I don't need to. You know, I was a professional. I had a source of income. I will add that when I bought Rivendell from the bankruptcy court, what was in my mind was, first of all, I knew really good products when I saw them. You know, I knew that the Jensen Pack and the uh, Rivendell Bomb Shelter tent were really good designs, and, and Don Jensen designed both of them. He was a genius. He was a brilliant guy. It was very, and being an active climber myself, you know, I wanted access to good gear and unique designs. So I bought Rivendell in part to save these designs and keep them on the market. I was still designing my own gear then, and Rivendell, you know, gave me an opportunity, gave me a vehicle to do that. But there's always been this strong desire to keep these Rivendell products on the market and to uh, and to allow people who wanted to use them to be able to acquire them and use them. Right. How 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 cool is it for you to see people who still love these products? I mean, there's still people who who collect the Yak Pack, right? And 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 you know are always looking for a Jensen Pack. How cool is it for you to be a part of companies that 
that still means something to people. There's plenty of companies that have come and gone. I don't need to make money off of this. What matters to me, for me, this is 100% about making these products available to people who want them and want to use them. This is why I do this. You know, I mean, I mean, people normally go into business to make a living. Some people go into business because they want to get rich. You know, everybody needs enough money to live on, but I am not a money-oriented person. You know, back in the 1970s, early 1970s, when I started climbing, I was attracted to the mountain climbing crowd, partly because of the kind of people they were. Pretty mellow people. They're nice people. They're congenial people. You know, you to climb a mountain as part of... A, a rope team, you've got to trust the people you're with. It's a cooperative enterprise, the kind of people I liked and respected and wanted to be around. To me, it's a people thing. I'm doing this for other people. Are you surprised by the people that you find reaching out to you or the people who are reaching out to, to Eric? Has that been surprising to you, the amount of people who kind of come out of the woodwork and, and ask these questions and want to learn more and kind of rediscover or are introduced to the brand even you know years later? Yeah, absolutely, because as far as I knew, nobody knew who we were, and we had kind of dropped off the radar, and uh, and uh, we're nobodies, you know, that's kind of the way I looked at it, and if, uh, if anybody out there knows who I am, I'm kind of shocked by that. I think, I think the thing that I've learned from having these conversations with people like Bruce, yourself, you know, others... Um, is we're all archivists in a way, like we're all historians in, in you know, one form or another. It, you are in the fact that you're, you kept a brand alive, right? Like you brought yeah. it out of the ashes and, and kept it alive. And maybe you don't think of yourself that way. Uh, maybe you do. I, I, I want to go back a little bit and tease out a couple more, you know, thoughts from you uh, before we wrap up. But what, what are some of the lessons that you learned from your time building Yakworks? You know, there was a, was it about 10 years that, that you were building that company and designing? And, yeah. you know, what are the, what are the lessons that you took away from that time? Yakworks survived for 10 years by buying products from wholesalers and reselling them at a markup. Uh, it was not a successful business from the standpoint of designing and making our own gear and then selling that gear. The, the products, these types of products are labor intensive. There's a lot of cost involved in making them. If you build a really good product like a pack or a tent that's going to last for 20, 10 or 20 years, you don't get repeat business. You know, if you sell a tent to somebody and the tent is still serviceable 20 years later, you're not going to see that customer again. And that's why I think a lot of these small comp outdoor companies of the 1970s and 1980s failed is because it's just not very viable as a business model to design and make your own gear and sell your own gear. It works a lot better as a hobby or as a hobby business, but from a business standpoint, and, and early winners had kind of the same experience. You know, they, Bill Nikolai started out with his omnipotent design. That was his first product. Again, a sophisticated design with a lot of parts to it and very labor-intensive to put together. He sold the tents himself, but it's, it's a hard way to make a living because you're not moving a lot of product. They don't generate a lot of income, and where his business really took off, of course, he got his big break with the invention of Gore-Tex, and he was one of the very first people to sell Gore-Tex garments. But one of the things that I learned about this business is that a very high percentage of the sales, 90% or more, are in garments and apparel. 
And most of this stuff, most mountain parkas do not get used in the mountains. People wear them on campuses, they wear them to work, they wear them around the neighborhood. And that's where your business comes from. You know, mountain climbing and serious backpacking is actually a pretty small market. And back in those days, it was a tiny market. So, you know, companies like the Yak Works and Early Winners and a lot of the others made their money from selling apparel. And we had, we had our own apparel designs. You know, we teamed up with a couple that were designing and making apparel items, parkas, and so forth. And it was the same thing with uh, Yvonne Chouinard and Patagonia. I wrote all of the copy for the Ackworks catalog. And we would take, for example... A, a plastic utensil set, you know, a knife, a fork, and a spoon made out of plastic for backpackers, you know, sturdier than the picnic stuff you buy in a grocery store. This is reusable. But we would just buy that, and we would sell it through our catalog in our retail store. And uh, the catalog copy that I wrote for that went cheap, exclamation point, plastic, exclamation point, but not cheap plastic, exclamation point. And then I would write humorous copy for it, and we would sell that stuff that way. And that was really the kind of uh, business approach that kept the Yakworks alive for 10 years. We were not, uh, you know, we sold a lot of Yak packs, relatively speaking, but the packs really weren't all that viable from a business standpoint in terms of money coming in, money going out for expenses, and some money left over to pay ourselves for our time and work and, and so forth. It, it was just, I found that it was very, very difficult to make a go of it on straight outdoor gear. You know, some companies did. I don't want to discourage anybody from trying to do that, but they got to understand that it's not easy. So you have to understand the dynamics of that business. That's a huge lesson. That's super important. Any last thoughts that you want to share about I guess your legacy in the industry. Do you do you see yourself as a, as a part of this larger industry? Well, we never became a really big company. For several years, the Actworks employed about three dozen people full time, and I feel good about that. You know, this was a job. It supported families. We put out gear that people wanted and bought and used. And over the many years that have passed since then, I still hear good things about our gear, and I feel good about that. There's a sense of accomplishment. We were never a big player. I certainly don't see myself as one of the most important people in the industry. I came up with some original ideas, and in that respect, I see myself as a contributor. I think if you look at the whole history of the human race, it's about progress. It's about people over time gradually figuring out ways to do things better. And many, many people contributed to that over many, many generations. And I'm just, you know, a little cog in that great big wheel. Um, and the whole outdoor industry as a whole is a pretty pretty good-sized industry, and I would be surprised if anybody told me that I had any kind of major or even significant influence on it. I think I, I look at myself as somebody with good ideas and a good design philosophy. I think I have something to teach others about how if you want to do this as a calling, you know, design gear for use by others. Um, I think I have some things to say that might be helpful to others who want to do that. And to the extent that I have a legacy in this, probably the most important aspect of that today would be what use others could make of uh, my experience and the lessons I've learned in life and take that and run with it. You know, I'm old, they're young. It's kind of a passing the torch type of thing. I want to yeah. say one more thing about designing gear. 
And this goes to the personalities and personal traits of the people who do it. We have the ability to visualize things that other people don't see. You know, we have a problem-solving orientation in the way we think. But basically, what goes on inside our minds is like a storm, a swirling storm of ideas. And eventually, something pops out. And I think that's where the Jensen Pack came from. That's where the Yak Pack came from. But you don't have to you don't have to be somebody at that top end of the IQ curve to do this work and you can do this well. And Jensen I'm sure was that kind of person. I never met him, but I I look at his work, I look at his designs, at what came out of his mind and I know that's where it came from. And that's why he did what he did. Uh the rainfly for the Rivendell bomb shelter work was designed by Larry Horton, and it looks like a very simple uh, design thing, but it's, but it's actually a work of genius. And, uh, and and I can look at it, and just by looking at it I, and putting it on the tent and seeing how it works, I can see that it was the product of not only a very bright mind, but a very restless one. And, and, and Larry Horton, no doubt, is that kind of person. Well, you definitely channeled it and, and made some great things happen, and, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and you know i i want you to know that the your impact lives on and we've got we've got you know items from your your collection from yak works from from rivendell in our collection right now from your perspective where do you think i fit into all this you know i'm still trying to learn myself kind of the entire history i'm kind of in the middle of documenting everything but i i I see you right in there with you know with with Dom and 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 Larry and and you know creating these products kind of at the same time, I think it's important. I don't think it's one person that creates a product, but I think it's important to recognize that, like you said, the wheel wasn't invented by one person. There's lots of people with similar ideas, and and I think you fit into that. I think it's important to know. You know, there are multiple people that innovated and and refined ideas and. And it's not always a giant leap, right? It's people like you who are kind of making those incremental changes and innovations year after year. So I think you're definitely a a piece of all of this. Today I'm joined uh, by Eric Hardy, um, who is is really the man behind Rivendell Mountain Works and its current current iteration, its current form. Um, Thanks for... Thanks for taking some time to talk a little bit about Rivendell with me, Eric. Yeah, you bet. It's a it's a pleasure. Um, the the one thing that I I know really about Rivendell after especially talking with Don and and hearing about you and your work is Rivendell is there's just so much passion involved in in this brand. Um, you know, from from you know the people who started it to to the two of you picking it back up. I just just sense like a passion and love for these products and from the people who are still hunting down the originals to the people who are coming and, and buying packs that you're sewing up yourself. That's, that's one of the things that I've noticed, especially about this brand is just, there's, there's just a love um, for it. I, maybe that's how you got into it, but we can, we can talk a little bit about that, but sure. Um, have you noticed that too? Just kind of this, this love for, for these products. Yeah, I think that's maybe been the, this is the best, Part of the whole uh, endeavor is connecting with some people like that who who uh, are really taken with two things. Some, some you know, design-wise, there's and, and the design ethos. There's that side people can connect with that, but also the cottage industry side of it. Um, 
And and you know when you get into something, you know if you if you're if it's just a, a strong conviction of yours, you really don't know how other people are going to react to it or, or what they're going to react to, if anything. And so that's been really um, heartwarming to to have people say, I really appreciate what you're doing um, from a manufacturing side. Right. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit because um, you're really the one behind so much of that and the craftsmanship. Um, but maybe turning back the clock a little bit, what was your first exposure to the outdoors and then maybe and more formally the outdoor industry i guess what was your first experience in the outdoors that really impacted you and made you want to get into this space um well i uh, i go way back in my experience in outdoors and camping and and hiking and backpacking but when when i was a youth um but it was really in college that i connected with a tribe of people that did that and and so i i that was sort of the formative time um and and actually the original rivendell was just starting at that time when i was in college so they were a brand new thing and we saw some of their gear right away because actually you know back in the early 70s there there weren't very many manufacturers there was a handful of well-known ones that are still um still around or in some form <laughs> and um and Rivendell was 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 the small one of those and the most unusual and and um and so I can think of a couple of people in my in my tribe of outdoor friends who who got some of the early um products from Rivendell so we were exposed to them but we did wasn't just a esoteric thing hearing about it we actually got to Got to see him firsthand. Um, that answer. Right. Yeah, it does. Where Where were you going to school at the time? I was at the University of Virginia, um, and uh, uh, there was a, an outing club there um, at the time, and that was where I I met like-minded people. I don't know how I would have ever connected otherwise, uh, because you know that was long before there was uh, a digital arena and um, <laughs> ways to connect with people online that were like-minded, and and, um, and we found that there was a, a there were a number of us misfits who really wanted to be spending all of our time in the outdoors, <laughs> not going to school. Right. Is, was that around the time that you started to notice products? I guess when did you develop a, an interest in and products. Yeah, that would have been the time. Yeah, for sure. Was there a certain piece of gear that really stuck out to you, or a brand, or, or was that was that Rivendell? What what were some of the brands that were just kind of around that really stuck out to you and or influenced you during that time? Um, well, Sierra Designs um, comes to mind because they they were doing something really unusual in that um, their catalogs were works of art. Uh, from from the early 70s, they did concept catalogs. Uh, one catalog was all watercolors. <laughs> they had incredible artists who um, who, who did all these uh, watercolor pictures of their products, which was nobody was doing anything like that. And they shot a whole um, catalog um, on set in uh, the ghost town of Bodie, California, did all their products. So that was a, a thing of beauty. Um, and their products were, you know, really well regarded 
and but some of the trad designs too that sort of crossed over out of Europe were were pretty pretty cool. Some of the rucksack things that came over and then got modified a little bit by one that sticks in my mind is an is an Alpine Designs rucksack back when they still had uh, leather shoulder straps with, with felted pads that were sewn on. <laughs> and I actually just recently scored one of those in mint condition. Um, wow. Uh, um, so, so those kinds of things uh, caught my caught my eye. Right. We've you mentioned catalogs, and that's something that at the university we're trying to do. And I probably mentioned it to you. Um, and I, I talked to Don about it as well. But we're building out this this catalog collection at the university, so these works of art can be preserved for the long term. Um, you know, we've got temperature controlled environments and professional archivists and and uh, have been building out a collection. I just pulled up some of the Sierra Designs catalogs, um, and they really are works of art. They're beautiful. Um, so that's yeah, been they fun had to another one that was, a, it was a, a documentary. It was it was more, more a journal than it was a catalog. It was um, all photographed on the West Coast Trail of Vancouver Island, where a lot of the guys who were the owners and, and um, workers <laughs> went on this, like, I think it was like seven or fourteen day trip up the West Coast Trail, which was was really primitive a trail at that point in time. Still is a little bit, um, and they shot their whole catalog on that hike. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's just there's something about that time, like the the level of care and attention, and like the authenticity, and I don't know that you just. It's just different now, and you've probably got thoughts on on current outdoor brands and um but it was just it was people in it eating, breathing, living it um and it, there's just kind of another level of love and care you know in a pack like you know a rivendell like like you sew by hand or or a water colored um you know catalog there's just kind of another level to it um but just it seems like that time there was so much of that going around, just a lot of passion. Yeah, and and a lot of artistic uh, touch to um, presenting and making things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, I guess so. You, you kind of mentioned some of your your influences, some of the packs that that you were interested in. Um, I guess around this time when the company Revendell was getting started, how did you first hear about it? I think probably just from. Yeah, I might have first heard about it in an ad that they ran in, in like a, a, a climbing magazine. I'm not sure, but I, I I can't say that definitively. I don't remember, um, but I do know that you know one of one of my close friends in in the uh, in the outing club. We were we climbed together and did some winter mountaineering and stuff. He bought a, a Jensen pack very early on, probably in. Uh, 73, I think. And so that was my first exposure to that. Um, right, because that, that would have been really early then because the the original Rivendell, I guess with, with Larry Horton starting it, was 1971? Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so 73, that was pretty soon after they, they had gotten going. Yeah, and, and the, the thing was, you know, we were all skeptical a little bit to, to one extent because the only other thing going back then were, were frame packs, right? 
and here they came out with a completely frameless pack. <laughs> and we were like, really? Oh, come on, you know. And then when you actually had somebody there with one and using it, it was like, oh, okay. And let me tell you, though, when you when you wore one of those, uh, there was no going back to frame packs. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was going to say, kind of, what, what was your first reaction when when you experienced one? I, I guess, first of all, seeing it, it was a little bit of dis- disbelief, or um, but but then using it, what what was that experience like? <laughs> well, that's funny because you know one of the things that I've always tried to be really um, uh, honest about in on the website and in people that. In, my conversations with customers is that the pack isn't for everybody um, because you got to have the right personality to deal with having to pack it. Um, it's just not a pack that you casually throw things into and go off and, and walk 15 miles. You know, you have to you have to organize it and pack it because it has no frame. You got to be mindful of that and. And so, <laughs> so getting used to the pack w- required a little bit of uh, a little pra- a little bit of practice, to be, to be honest. Right. And so, th- just kind of getting into the, the pack itself and what was the uniqueness about it. Um, I guess maybe from your perspective, seeing something like this come on the market, a frameless pack was, you know, really unique. What what other features stuck out that were kind of major innovations? Well, it, it, I think it was mostly that the pack balanced so well, and we were doing, you know, we were cross-country skiing and and winter mountaineering and doing mixed climbing, and and you wanted something that was really stable and hugged you really close and didn't throw your balance off, and and so that was that was the big motivator, and, and of course. It was incredibly light weight, <laughs> so you weren't you weren't already at a deficit of a couple of pounds of uh, pack weight. Right. So, kind of moving forward a little bit, um, Rivendell, um, with the original owner, the company kind of goes under, goes bankrupt. The assets, everything gets sold to Don at Wittenberger. Um, that was when was that? Was that about? kind of early 80s is that right yeah that's that's right and then um don you know picks every like drives out to victor idaho where the company was brings everything back to, to washington right um and then how did you get involved in kind of this this brand picking well, back that's up a after funny story. That's the, falling that's apart the, that's the quirkiest weirdest part of the whole story you know you know so many things in people's lives that turn out that the best are, are random, you know, key in on some random in, incident. And that and that was certainly the case with mine. Well, Don was, um, as you know, involved with the Yak Works. He was one of the founding people. Yeah. And um, and I'd go down there periodically and check out their gear, and they were producing, you know, frameless packs that were, were pretty neat. And, and but I, you know, I went down there a couple times, and and this one time, just randomly, I happened to be down there, and I I forget what I I might have I might have bought something. I don't I don't remember what I was doing, but when I came out of the store, there was this this man trying to wrestle an industrial sewing machine into the back of his Subaru, 
<laughs> first of all, the machines are really heavy, and, and and the Subaru at the time didn't have the most spacious back end for the sewing machine, so it was sticking out the back, and he was trying to tie it in place with climbing rope. And I went, I think I have to go introduce myself. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I met Don. Wow. That that I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of too too crazy of a of a circumstance, right? Just just how that came together. Um, and and did you ever? You probably wouldn't have ever thought that that would have led to a relationship where you were coming up, you know, making the pra- uh, the, the products that you fell in love with. What, what what's that feeling like? Where we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but you ended up getting involved with a brand that that you loved and a product that you loved and appreciated. Like, what's that feeling like for you? Well, I, you know, but by then that was when I met him it was probably eighty four, might have been eighty three. I don't remember exactly. Um, but by then, since the original Rivendell had shuttered. Uh, you know the packs weren't available anymore, and I was using my pack pretty heavily. I was a backcountry ranger for the National Park Service, and so I lived with the pack on my back for 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 years in the summers. And there was a need to replace your pack if you're using it that heavy, and you know, everything wears out. So, um, so when I when I found out that he was the fellow who'd acquired the assets, I was like. Oh, you know, and I knew other people who would want them. I said, you know, basically it's like I would love to make these on an authorized basis and have access to the original patterns would be a whole lot easier than what I've been doing, you know, yeah. type thing. And he was just really super receptive to to that. And and that's been the really great thing about working with Don all these years. He's been really easy to work with, very and extremely generous. And I'm really grateful that uh, that. He just trusted me out of the blue to uh, run with that and do my best to keep the pack in production. Right. Where did you get your experience, uh, you know, creating product, sewing? Where, where did you get some of that technical I had skill? absolutely no experience. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. I, I, just, I just sort of learned it the rough rough and tumble way on in the process of doing things. And there's still a lot of things that, you know, I don't know how to do, Um just, I've not had the need to do a lot of patterning, um, and that's a real art form. I huge admiration for the people who are really good at that, creating things from um, that are production grade patterns, where you know they know how to put things together so that you can give it to a, a good seamstress and say, um, "Here, make this." <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. Um, well, a bit of time has passed since. 83 or 84 uh i guess what's your experience been like bringing this brand back to life um you know over the last uh, the last few years what's that experience been like for you the ups the downs um how has that how has that been for you um well it's been a, a mixed thing in a lot of ways but, you know it's been a really really uh challenging to try to do this as a cottage industry and to support myself, you know, and, and it's been pretty marginal. Um, but part of that was choice. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a young fella. And so it was kind of like, I don't really, I didn't really have any, um, 
not pulling up the word I want to find, but um, it, it wasn't uh, in the cards for me to like start a, a big operation with a lot of people working. You know, right. I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, the way I want to do it is be able to work out of my home, at my shop, and work with other people out of their homes and keep the operation small because it's the only way I'm going to manage this. Um, I just didn't want to go bigger. It might have been different if I had tried to do it as a occupation 20, 30 years, you know, earlier. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what's what's the response been from from people who maybe they were disappointed hearing that the the company had originally shut down? What's the response been from people who discovered it from the beginning and fell in love with it? Um, to people like me who who've discovered it after the fact um, and have kind of been captivated by it as well. What's what's that response been like? It, it's been good in both respects, um, and I've had a number of people who who were quite familiar with the earlier incarnation of Rivendell and were just delighted that some of the products were coming back. And the, and the really amazing thing is that I still get orders for Jensen packs. From people say, I've always wanted these ever since the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's what? What do you think it is about the Jensen Pack, the the brand, like this this combination of things? There's there's kind of this, you know, looking at it from the outside in. I don't know if you feel about this way, being in the trenches making them, but you know, I when I first became acquainted with the brand, there was kind of you know, this is probably silly to say, but there's kind of some magic around it. And I don't know if that's the the Rivendell brand and, you know, some of those homages back to, you know, the Lord of the Rings, right? And, and you know, that, that name itself. But there's something about the, you know, someone like yourself making it. There's that name. There's some kind of, I don't know, there's something about it that, that has drawn me in and drawn other people in. What Can you speak to that at all or, or what, what you think that is? I think I think all of the above are is true. Um, there, there's definitely a, a connection to the name thing that some people are just like, um, you know, the, the the fantasy of the Lord of the Rings imagery and and uh, and the books. You know, there's some people who are are cap are so captivated by that. Um, that it, that it spills over into the gear. It's not. It's not a rational thing, really. I mean, right. Um, but there's there's definitely. I don't think it stops there. Even for those people, you know, they they're drawn to it for other reasons also. But I think there is definitely some of that. Um, and um, and so we've you know we've played with that and and uh, to a, a small extent to. Um, just for fun, like, you know, like our little product tags, product cards. Um, most of them say, you know, like made by elves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Type you got to, you got to lean into that. Yeah. Well, it's you got to lean into the magic. It's, it's fun. You know, it, it, it's, it's not serious either. It's nice to not be serious about some things. And that's one of them, I think. Right, and I I didn't get into this with Don as well, and but you know I'm hoping at some point to talk to Larry if he'd ever want to talk about you know why 
um, you know, why the name and, and why that was such an influence. Do you have any insights on that at all? I don't. Uh, um, I've felt, I've been very, um, uh, I'm not sure reluctance is the right word, but very, very measured in my communications with, um, with Larry because I, I always felt that he, that he was very sensitive to talking about it and didn't, didn't want to talk about um, right. that era. And so I was, I, I, there were a few things I needed to know, and I tried to be very diplomatic and, and, and not bother him and just just sort of say, you know, uh, you know, if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to, like, like to know something. Yeah. Right. No, I'm not. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I mean, I, and I'm not judgmental about it at all. There's a million reasons why somebody might not want to go back into the past like that. Oh, sure. Uh, and so, I, I really, I really never pursued um, much with Larry for that. Right. Right. Um, so, I guess kind of on a different note, and you know, we'll we'll wrap up here in a minute, but. Um, are you, I mean, you have this appreciation of, of some of these, you know, early, you know, this original gear, um, you know, are you, you, you mentioned, you know, acquiring, um, some packs that you had always wanted. Are you still on the hunt? Are you, are, are there still things that are on your list? Not really. Um, the, uh, like I mentioned that Alpine Designs rucksack that I picked up recently and, um, <laughs> I, I'm not much of a, a gear freak in terms of trying to have museum pieces. First of all, I don't have any place yeah. for them. Um, but that particular pack I got for reasons other than nostalgia. I think it was a, it was is an amazing piece of craftsmanship. Um, and people would some collectors would pay really good money for a pack like that. But I wanted it for a functional reason. I wanted to take a, a look at exactly how they made the leather bottoms on those. That's a leather bottom rucksack. And I, I get requests periodically about to do something like that on some of our packs as a custom. And I've sort of declined most of the time because I didn't really um, know exactly how that was best done in the day. And so that's why I got it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that I can take a good look at how they put this together. Um, and And it also is the same era. So it's sort of very consistent. If someone were to ask me to do something, I like to be consistent with the way things were, were assembled. Um, right, right. No, that makes sense. And it, yeah, almost almost out of doing some research, sounds like. Um, well, you know, I, I, it's exciting to see the brand around. Um, I, I, you know, I I've kind of felt that excitement from other people that I've talked to, um, just about the brand being around and being available and. Um, what are you excited for, for for the future of the brand? You know, you've been at this for a while. What what excites you and, and keeps you coming back and keeps you doing it? Well, I, I hope that um, I don't know if you if Don talked about this with you in your conversation, but I, I hope that he is able to to be successful at um, at getting the tent into some sort of limited production because. That that's one of the missing things, and I I decided not to do that early on because of the space and the cost. Right. Yeah. Um, it takes 
first of all, it takes a way bigger cutting table than I have in my shop. Uh, and it just takes a bunch of room that I for production that I don't have. And I wanted to focus on the packs, but I've, I've told him numerous times that I w- would do what I can to support him and give him some kind of help in that. Um, and he's made steps along the way, and so that, I'm, I'm hopeful that he'll find the resources and the energy to keep going, and I can I help a little with that because the tent was an amazing thing. Um, I actually own one of the originals, and uh, so I can speak from firsthand that it's uh, it's pretty unique, but it's really small. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the one thing that I keep hearing from people is how small it is. Yeah. But, um. Well, that's great. Any any last thoughts that you want to share um, just about your experience with the company or uh, anything that we left off? Uh, I don't know. I guess the the only other thing would be sort of that um, I just feel really um, honored to be part of the community of uh, people making uh, not just vintage products, but handcrafted, the handcrafted movement of... Um, creativity and making products and not just backpacks but handbags and leather goods and all sorts of things because in the last 10 years there's been just an explosion of people um, you know making things sort of old school ways Um, and of course a lot of that's been enabled by the internet being able to actually do something kind of crazy like that and and let people know about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and thank goodness for that. I mean, there's there's such an opportunity um, for people like you and other craftsmen um, who are making products, and and you know, I, I'm happy to see that. I'm happy to see that you know people are interested in, in the past and interested in in you know something that's handmade and, and put a value on that. Well, we um, and we would never have been as successful as we are without the internet because. Um, you know, if you go back and think about the timeline and meeting Don back in the uh, early 80s, um, it wasn't until um, about 2007 that I decided to start trying to do this more commercially. And that was because I didn't have any way to market. Um, right. Marketing yeah. was too expensive to do in print media. There was just no way. I mean, you just you couldn't really reach your target market effectively for a product like this this um, through that kind of print media at the time without spending a fortune. And and so when the Internet came along, all of a sudden, you know, a few years after that, I was like, oh, maybe maybe this is the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then it became worthwhile, though. And, and it was amazing to see how quickly it connected with people who were who still knew about, who knew the name. Right, yeah, it's... It, it it's probably fun for someone who loved that product to to stumble upon it on online somehow, right? Like oh, maybe yeah, searching I heard that all they, the time. You know, people were saying, yeah, I just randomly thought, gee, I wonder if they're out there. <laughs> yeah, that's got to feel good, knowing that yeah. there's people who are thinking that, and then they, when yeah. they connect with you, how that's got to feel for them and for you, knowing, you know, that connection has been made again. Yeah. So here's just one, one last thing, and might be just a, personal interest and curiosity to you is um, I was just doing a compilation of totals before we got on the phone because I haven't done this in a while. And 
I now estimate that uh, since I started doing this commercial that we've made um, over 600 Jensen packs. Wow. And of the uh, of the two different day packs that uh, we make, I've done about 2,500 of those. Um, of course, those numbers seem like really small, but you got to remember this is ever, this is not uh, production sewing. And right. Yeah. No. This is this is you doing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Every piece of leather. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, that's amazing. No, I'm glad that you you'd share that. Yeah. Well, hopefully many more to come. Well, yeah. I I, I love making packs. It's uh, it it's a real um. It's a real great craft. I really, really enjoy making things for people like that. Well, that's great. Well, if if people want to to connect with the brand, RivendellMountainWorks.com is is the best place. It looks like. Yeah. Um, and uh, glad to see you're doing we, what we you're do doing. We do have a presence on Instagram and Facebook as well, but uh, I don't I don't spend a lot of time um, with the, those those forms of the media, but they're there. Right. No, that's great. Yeah. So anyone who's listening, follow those as well. Um, well, Eric, thanks for taking time. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you spending some time and sharing a little bit about your craft. Yeah, it's good to make the connection with you. I really appreciate your uh, interest in the, in the history and the, um, and the product line. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Chase. Thanks for listening to the Highlander Podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found. On HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.